Hello and welcome to the Eddie Podcast. This is where we share stories from dads who have faced challenges of raising a child with a disability, or have lost a child, or have a child with significant mental illness. Conversations are raw and real, and sometimes not easy, but our aim is to inspire and connect, to provide some hope, because in the challenges that life throws your way, I think it's helpful to hear from other dads who are going through it or have been through a similar challenge. So in today's podcast, we're going to meet Richard Weisfeld, who was our first podcast we recorded on the road in Richard's office. I remember when we first spoke on the phone about Richard appearing on the podcast, he talked so openly about raising his profoundly autistic child, Max, and how he'd helped fundraise for various charities, but actually had never spoken publicly about having a son with a disability. You'll even hear on the podcast how none of his work colleagues knew till Max was at least seven or eight, or maybe even nine, about Max's autism. Despite some of life's setbacks, you'll hear Richard talk about how proud he is of Max and being Max's dad. And on more than one occasion, he talks about how incredibly lucky he feels. And I can only encourage you to find a way to adopt a similar mindset and see the positive in your situation. So let's dive into the podcast. Richard, welcome to the Eddie podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I've actually never been on a podcast before, so um, I feel that this is my virginity being broken uh, podcast-wise, so thank you so much. Very welcome. We'll go as gently as we can. I'm going to need you to be. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Before we get into your story, tell me about your background and home life and working life. It's really very, very dull. Um, A Northwest London boy, have been all my life. I think I've moved within four miles over a 53-year period. I am married to a lovely lady who I've been married to for 27 and a half years. I've got two sons, uh, Max, who's 25, that we're going to be discussing today, and my other son's 22. Very lucky guy, normal upbringing, parents divorced when I was a teenager, but otherwise I've been very lucky and still am, to be honest with you. Talk to us about Max. Tell us about Max. Okay, so Max is 25 years old. He is what I would describe as profoundly autistic. Um, He's pretty much nonverbal. He is um, an incredibly happy young man. Although he's uh, flitted between happiness and unhappiness a little bit over the uh, lockdown period. But he's in a very good place at the moment. Uh, He's moved into supported living in uh, December 2020. And Max uh, was our firstborn, first of all our friends to have children we were, and we were pretty damn clueless. I was 27, my wife was 26, didn't know what we were doing as most parents. But then, um, as you'll hear, I'm sure, along the way today, that the the journey wasn't quite what we expected. And um, it's been a, a very interesting journey, which I'm I'm sure you want to explore a bit more. We certainly do, and I think I think what's really interesting is your tw- is, Max is twenty five yep. now, and that covers a whole range of uh, ages and development and things. So I would like to really, if we can, go right back to the beginning. Okay, so so he was your first, yeah, so, but perfectly normal pregnancy. Normal birth. I mean, you know, as normal as a birth can be for a man to say that. Sorry to sound so uh, horrible about these things. But yes, normal pregnancy. Developmentally, he hit all his milestones, really, for the first six to nine months was sitting up when he should be, crawling when he should be, mamas and daddas, up until possibly past his first birthday. And he wasn't quite a walking, perhaps many, maybe when he should have done. But I don't think there was anything to be overly concerned about. But then he started losing some of his words. So the language he developed, he lost a little bit. We couldn't work out what was getting on. I think I was 
pretty frustrated about it at the time. Um, and then he would hold his ears, put his hands over the, his ears. So I guess 18 months into his life, we went and saw an audiologist, it may have been nearer two years, who pretty much told us that uh, Northwest London is incredibly competitive. Don't worry, children go at their own pace and he'll be fine. Fine, okay, sort of thing we probably wanted to hear anyway. But there were certain telltale signs. Nursery was tricky. He still wasn't talking. He was walking, but there was there were a few other uh, behaviours that we we noticed again, like uh, holding his ears. He wasn't deaf. That's fine. Uh, we went and saw head of peas at one of the largest hospitals in L- London, who told us, "No, he's fine. He's definitely not autistic." Because the alarm bells had started ringing. And I'd heard of autism. Ironically, uh, my wife and I, um, our first date was going to see Rain Man. Just don't know if we were going to see the one about the guy inventing something, becoming a billionaire. We saw Rain Man. So maybe my life would have been something very different. But either way. For our listeners, I'll say Richard's smiling at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, it was just maybe it's the irony or the gods laughing at us. Anyway, so we didn't know a lot about autism. We hadn't heard a bit, but I read a bit. And there were some bits and pieces and it was the early stage of the internet. And I think I discovered some of the things and there was some definite box ticking on my, in my. Also the early stages of people understanding autism or what that actually meant. Because it was around about that time, you know, that it it was, there was a bit of a breakthrough and and they were kind of, there was at least it had a it had a name. It had a name indeed, but we didn't really know it anything that much. There was obviously Lovas in America in America who'd come up with um applied behavioural I've forgotten what the other A is. There you go. It's been a long time since we did it. And so we we knew about that. And so we thought well, maybe we should get Max some therapy pr- prior to his uh diagnosis. And we had a young girl come in and do some exercise with him to try and ca- get him to catch up with school. And then he was real. He was difficult finding nursery a real, real struggle. Kindergarten, excuse me, in so much so that the headmistress actually said, "Would you mind if we come round? If I come round and have a chat with you and your wife?" And she came round to our house and said, "I'm really worried developmentally about Max." We didn't know where to go. We we got pushed and pulled to a few other places. Another uh, diagnosis was per, um, pervasive developmental disorder. Um, which we thought, okay, well, at least it's not autism. That's fine. And it wasn't until Max was three years, three months that we got a formal diagnosis. And what was that day like? It wasn't my favourite day in all, of all time, to be mm. honest with you. Yeah, you know, I was hoping to hear the word mildly. He's mildly autistic. You know, he's, he's only slightly autistic, but he said, no, no, your son is autistic. He just, but, you know, we went to this room, it was a hot day, and Max was like, typically autistic as I, as I know it now and it must have been the easy, easiest diagnosis in the history of uh, of of uh, her her work or anybody's work and it was a it was a hammer blow because all i think if you have a child with a dis- disability and it's prevalent from day 1 your expectations are mar- managed but with max it was you know for the first 14 15 months oh this is going to be Prime Minister, he's going to be chief executive of a major firm. He's going to be the best charity guy in the world. The the options were myriad, and you get told that no, that's not the case. And so it was a really difficult time. I think maybe we were very young. We didn't know anybody else with um, with any children, let alone uh, children with special needs. And it was it was difficult without a doubt. You know that initial blow is. Just a shock, but I don't think we were that shocked because we'd already started therapy. But I remember going on that day and coming out of there as and having to tell my in-laws and my mum, and it was very tough. And I think I was very angry at the time, as, yeah, as I, you can be. Yeah, and and that's completely understandable. And I think also 
for your parents and, and, and in-laws to also kind of understand because there's a generational gap there. Yep. And Absolutely. Oh, nobody really understood. And we, we managed to, by hook or by crook, because I'd already read about Lovas and this decided that was a way forward. There were some books that show that there was some promise and we managed to find a community in North London that had children with like that. I mean, we found the, the group sessions actually horribly depressing. It wasn't something that we pursued terribly. But we then got involved in a um, something called London Early Autism Partnership, an organisation under a professor, oh, Glenn Sallows, I think his name was. And we max did 40 hours worth of therapy a week, you know, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, person after person, because it was this thought process that if you intervene really early and go through routines that you're going to reverse the uh, the traits of autism. Now, I spent a lot of money because uh, we weren't fi- funded for that, uh, pursuing that, and we have no idea what Max would be like without it. But I've got, n- I'll never know to my grave whether that was money well spent or money well burned, but you, you, you have the information in front of you, make those decisions and try and do the best for your, for your child at the time with that information. Max is around about four. You must have also been thinking about starting school and reception and your any peers that you had with, with children would be doing that. Yeah, so Max was already at school and we managed to have, find a, a lady who would go in and, and support Max at uh, his kindergarten. So that was one place. Um, but Max's day-to-day, that, that um, I remember my wife had just given birth and, we, birth, um, and about six months before and trying to get Max to kindergarten and he would really have a real problems he would freak out you know there was one point he almost passed out he hyperventilated so much and so my wife had to deal with all of that I was at work you know I'd get a phone call this was a nightmare at nine o'clock he was terrible he cried he wouldn't settle or it's been better this morning so I was slightly insulated by that and I think maybe you know we've got an amazing marriage after 27 and a half years but retrospectively and I've never really thought about it this moment maybe I should have been a bit more caring and understanding maybe I was but my Initial impression with 20 years hindsight is that maybe I could have been a better husband at the time. I don't know why wife will say listening to this, but that's probably my impression because she really was at the sharp end. Whilst I was just sitting in in my job in the city looking at screens all day. When you found out about him having you know, fully fledged autism, yep. as it were. Did you, did you, did a part of you start to grieve at that moment, do you think? And therefore you, the installation, was that just something that you... You know, I think we're, we're very lucky. Um, we're not the most analytical couple in the world. We don't sit there and think, you know, this is, this is what's going to happen. And that's what, it, and I think that would be the best advice I'd ever give anybody. We embraced our lack of analysis and lived day to day. We didn't worry, you know, yes, there were the thoughts of what's going to happen when he's, you know, going to primary school, secondary school, we're Jewish, what's going to, his mitzvah is going to be like, what's he going to be puberty? And, and we never had that. We tried not to look. I think maybe somebody gave us that advice, it was just us, that don't look too far in the future. And it was, you know, the, the thing about autism, behaviours come and go. And the things you really worry about, the hands on the ears, the picking up sticks, the mouthing, they were hassles for three months, six months, and they would disappear and then something else would, would rear its head. And so, I mean, for anybody listening, my advice is don't look too far in the future. These things unfold as they unfold. And I imagine I probably was, going back to your original question, was I grieving? I'm sure I was. I think I was angry. 
Um, I was in a really high pressure job and I don't imagine I was much fun to work with that time. I certainly wasn't most of the time anyway, but we got on with it and we had each other. And I think because we had each other, it worked very well. We were also, because we were doing this early autism intervention, we were very secretive. So nobody at work knew that I had a child with special needs. We didn't um, tell anybody. We wouldn't get a statement for him because we didn't want it to be on his record because this um, professor who saw us has said, he'll be fine. We'll get him, we'll get him talking. We'll be normal. No one will know. And we believe that. Um, and I haven't really discussed Max's autism. Max is um, nonverbal. Um, he's in terms of behavior, he's a wonderfully behaved child. And I would say uh, autism is a spectrum disorder. And, you know, you've got, got geniuses who go to Cambridge who are on the spectrum and you get the other end where Max is and in terms of his ability, his cognitive sense, his understanding. But behavior wise, he was an angel. All the carers always wanted to pick Max because he was easy. He'd always have friends at school because he couldn't speak. And if someone held his hand, they'd drag him around. The girls loved him. He was like having a dolly that never fought, never wanted to kick a football. He was very popular. So we didn't have those behaviors. We know other people with autistic children who had much more cognitive sense and understanding and language and um, communication, but they became very aggressive. And we turned up with friends with bruises, you know, bite marks and scratches all over them. We never had that with Max. So we were very, very lucky. And maybe had Max had different needs, we'd have had different marriage and different experience. So what were the sort of challenges then through sort of junior primary school, would you say? And maybe just external pressures or, you know, because by now you've got your other son who's called... Uh, Oliver. Oliver, and, great name. Yeah, thank you. And Oliver was, yeah... Atypical. He was fine. I remember we had one lunch. We had a bad lunch. We were sitting there. I had Max in one corner and Oliver bad lunch. And I said, "We've got two of them now." And it was, uh, but it was just a bad lunch, as every parent has. Yeah, it was fine. We go on holidays, and Max was great to be on on the holidays. But invariably, after a bad experience at a hotel where Max was screaming the place down and everybody was staring, we decided right that's the end of hotels for us for a while. We went to. Uh, Villa holidays where Max would have his own room, Olive would have his own room, and we just seemed to manage it that way. So things changed. External pressures, there weren't any really. Um, we, we're very lucky. We had a very stable marriage. I was doing well financially in the city at the time, and so the financial burden of the the the, the therapy wasn't a disaster. And um, as I said, we were keeping this secret because we didn't want anybody knowing. So nobody knew. We were incredibly secretive because Max was going to be fine. He was going to be cured. Everything was going to be fine. And I think slowly but surely we realised that that assumption was was a bit overly uh, optimistic, I, I shall say. And it realised that we're in this for the long haul. And then we got involved with outside agencies and was dealing with the school. We got Max a statement. But in terms of pressure, I mean, I'd, I, I could like to pay the horror story for people who are listening to this, but it really wasn't. It, we, we were very lucky. We had each other in a very close unit. Our parents were all very close and close at hand. And life life wasn't that bad. It's, you know, it had its moments where, you know, we had that despair. You, know, you look at Max and you just ask him a question he wouldn't answer. You just wonder what the hell's going on in that mind. Why would he behave the way he behaved? And the typical, why us? You know, and we went through that why us. I'm not saying we're bastions of of sense and it was so easy. And we still have that why us. There were times we go and watch Max in the school show and everybody else would be, you know, he was at a primary school uh, with support, mainstream. And the other kids were doing everything. And Max was on the stage with his support worker and freaking out. And he was just sinking into the chair and thinking, 
this wasn't what my life was meant to be like what the hell but you know at, at the time i'm sure it was bad but retrospectively looking back I, i've got a smile on my face again it was quite funny and I, i'm not a believer in anything higher authority but if there is a god he would definitely thought, who can we give a really challenging child to? And he looked around and saw my name and literally laughed his head off because I was the last person who had the patience or the um, ability to deal with a special needs child. It's very, I definitely had a laugh at my expense. I can see you laughing now. It's a shame we're not filming this one. <laughs> yes. But... Sorry, I've got a face for radio. Don't worry. <laughs> well, I think I think that's the hindsight of 25 years. Of course. And, and you know, if we're talking to, you know, there'll be, there'll be a variety of people listening to this, which is the great thing about the Eddie podcast but to that person who's got that five-year-old who has had challenging behaviors yep. and we've seen it and and experienced that what would you say to them I've, I've thought about this and I think it's listen live by the live for the day the behaviors come behaviors go and I'm not trying to belittle what other people go through I said I think we got very lucky with Max his his abilities may be on the very low scale but he was always a very calm child he, he wasn't stuck with the routine and that if something broke you know, he would have a horrible freak out. You've got to find that place where you can deal with it. Find a support network if you can, whether that be your spouse, whether that be family, be friends. Don't don't try and shoulder it on your own. Reach out to the local authority and demand from them that they help. My my view with the local authority is that it's a minefield and almost impossible to navigate without experience. Find someone who's done walked the road before and never take a no for an answer. If you think you're entitled to it, fight. We fought with the local authorities and trying to do it a nice way. I've been a governor of um, two schools within the borough for over a decade. And I've sat in Barnet meetings trying to help them with uh, things like EHP um, uh, care plans uh, when they move from um, statements. We try and be advocates and we try and be helpful. We fight our corner because my son doesn't have a voice, so I'm his voice. And it's really important that you fight for everything you can and never take no for an answer. And I think that would be my best advice. Don't worry about five years in the in, in the future. Five years will come. Worry about what you're dealing with today and then hopefully tomorrow will be slightly better. And if it's not, you'll deal with that then. And that would be definitely my best advice for anybody. So... You're not the most patient person um, and probably the best choice that God would choose to have a special needs child. <laughs> Talk to me not. about how you evolved into someone that can. Some of our friends that didn't have special needs, just maybe we weren't, as I said, we were very secretive to begin with, but when it was when we came out, so to speak, with Max, some of our friends knew and never asked. I don't think they understood it. And we'd go out on a Saturday night and they'd tell us about, their au pair who was eating too many biscuits or that Johnny only got a B instead of an A and they're really not happy with it. And those people disappeared along the way. Um, talking of in my impatience. Yes. Um, I, I don't know if I ever, ever got to grips with being, stop being impatient every now and then Max can be infuriating and I'll be like, Oh, for Pete's sake, Max. And I will, I'm certainly not perfect. I, I can't change who I am, but I've, I suppose you just learn to try and keep that and understand a bit more when it comes to your child with special needs and be a little bit more accommodating. As I said, I'll let myself down. I don't know how long this podcast is. If you've got 10, 10 hours, I can give you the first 300 pages of the times I've let myself down, but. You know, I try my best and, and like everybody, we, we, we have our faults. But Max has taught me, I've said this before, Max has permits for, I stood up and said, um, Max has taught me more than anybody else in my life. And that's true. You know, he's taught me things that I, and taken me to places I'd never have been a, a before. And so I'm, I, I think I'm privileged 
although it was said not the journey as I said I expected. It's when you say Max is non-verbal, you know when he's in a good mood or if he's unhappy or or so how how's how does that communication piece work? Because I imagine for some people when they think, you know, they might get that diagnosis and that's going to be the case, and their first worry is, well, how do we? How do we kind of talk? So how how does that kind of work? Max understanding is quite you know if we say right Ma- you know on a Max comes to stay with us every Friday and comes to eat uh, on a Tuesday night so we'll say okay Max we need three knives three forks three spoons lay the table go and get the serviettes go and get the cups he'll lay the table and that's what have you forgotten and he'll look out and realise salt and pepper he's got some words but uh, mostly it's single words so his understanding is there. Max, stop closing the doors. Max, stop flushing the toilet. Stop pissing things down the toilet. We'll have those. And he'll understand. And so we use tone of voice. Sometimes if Max is being naughty, I can give him a stare, a Paddington-type stare, and um, he uh, he knows that we're not. But yes, Max wears his heart on heart in sleep. When he's in a bad mood, he can be in a bad mood and uncooperative. But most of the time, he's very cooperative and very smiley and he'll come out with us if he's occupied he's much better out the house than in it because in it there will be something that will annoy him the fact that there's a door open or the top on the uh, ferry liquid isn't down or there's a cloth that should be out that shouldn't be out uh, the door the key so all these things that make max his autistic self will annoy him when we're out and about it's a world of wonder and we'll walk and we'll go to places and he's fine. So that's how his particular autism manifests. But it's such a different spectrum disorder that, it, you know, this will be unique to Max and there'll be so many other people listening. I hope they're listening that they will have very different experience. But we're lucky that we know when Max is in a bad mood. But sometimes he can be happy for one minute and then something and you don't know what it is will trigger. And you, you look at it and you think, what the devil what was the trigger? And you try and rack your brains. What was here? What put him off? And I just, you know, unfortunately, the hardest part is, and it always is, and it, it's the fact you can't say, look, Max, what's wrong? And it's that frustration by saying, you know what? I've got a bit of indigestion or, you know what? I've got hay fever. I've got a headache. I didn't like the way that front doorbell rang or there was a, you didn't hear it, but there's a fly in the corner. It was annoying me. Maybe he'd be saying that to us, but he can't. So we have to guess. And we know him well enough to know what's what's getting getting on his nerves most of the time. But sometimes we're in the dark, like anybody. And where does that kind of acceptance come from? You know, the, the situation of the it's the, you, if you want to beat yourself up and not accept it, it's going to be a very lonely, long journey. I think if you you know other people have gone through other journeys much more difficult than I have, and and. Um, you can you have a choice when you're faced with these things. Whenever you're faced with something really bad, you buckle down and get on with it. And it's a hard slog, it really is. But you get on with it and you learn to live with it. It becomes less painful and actually you start realising that um, it's a different different outlook and a different set of experiences, but none less valid than another set. And you learn new things that you'd never have done before. I, I genuinely believe I'm privileged to have had Max. I mean, I... I wouldn't have done at the time. It was my nightmare. But retrospectively, a quarter of a century gives you a nice, um, a nice ability to look back and have and and re reengage. And without a doubt, I'm a very lucky guy. I consider myself lucky, and I tell myself every single day. And as I wrote it down as, as you as you referenced it earlier. He managed to have a bar mitzvah. 
Which is yes. fantastic. How um, does that work? Okay, so Max can sing occasionally. He likes the words for songs. So we talk, and there's a blessing before the bit and a little blessing afterwards, and it's, I don't know, a 15-second song. So he learned that bit. And I, I mean, I'm not religious, so I don't believe in anything, but I learned the piece that he would have done and sung it in front of in a synagogue in front of a uh, an invited crew uh and learned what he would have done had he been mitzvahed and we had a party in the garden there was bouncy castles a bucking bronco a candy floss machine and bits and pieces and that was a mitzvah and it was actually you know people still remember it 12 years later whereas a lot of the other ones disappear into the ether because it was very different and it was it was really good um you know, I learned to sing Hebrew at age whatever it was, whoever, 40. Um, certainly something I never expected to do, but he could, I've always wanted to be his voice, and, and so I was on that day. That's lovely. That's really lovely. What's the best thing that someone's ever said to you that's either helped you in a moment of absolute despair or confusion? I thought or... you'd ask me this sort of question, and, and I, I, I try to pre-prepare for it because the answer is I wish there had been something so inspirational at any time that I thought, oh, now you've helped me out of this hole. I got in contact with an old teacher via Twitter, and I'm not on social media, but uh, he was the only teacher that I actually liked. I left school at 16 and didn't like school at all. This guy was really inspirational. We, we got in contact and he said, I like, an, it's like getting on an airplane, thinking you're going to land in the Caribbean. And what you end up doing is ending up in, in Denmark. It's not where you wanted to be. It's not what you expected, but actually you made the most of it and you had a fantastic time anyway. And I think that is how I would sum up, definitely plagiarizing him. But it didn't come to me till, till um, Max was probably 17, 18. But it's entirely right. It's not what I expected, certainly not what I paid up for. And now, obviously, I'd go on the same journey again. But at the time, I'd have said, no, 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 redivert it to, uh, to Barbados. We'll have a much better time. Or two atypical children, marriage, everything else. But ironically, the travails of having a normal in inverted commas, son, are equally uh, challenging. He's, you know, Max will never crash a car. Max is not going to lose his mobile phone um, and tell me Is this me to you go- dobbing Oliver in now? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm not, not going to let him listen to this. No, he's been an incredibly good son as well. I mean, honestly, such a good boy. But all those things that come with worry about being a parent, the first time they get out in their car mm-hmm. and the first time they crash their car, the first time they break up with a girlfriend, all these things that you have to worry about as a parent for, with a normal kid. I've had none of that. You know, my all my friends' kids are leaving university and they're looking for jobs. I'm helping them fill in CVs and things like that. None of that with Max. So it, it's it's a, just a very different journey. And, and I, I sometimes feel sorry for, I've got a friend of mine, best friend's got triplets and it's difficult with triplets, three sets of worries and school fees and, and university fees and worry and girlfriends and break, none of that. So it's a different journey. You'll have a different set of worries. In, in many ways, it's, uh, it, it's, it's easier, I have to say. But this part of the podcast might just be because I want to understand the path to residential and having had Max at home with you until he was 23? Yes. So he's 23. Thomas, for those listening, knows that he's 23 next month. Okay. Not that we've got residential because I don't think I'm ready at all, but talk to us in the audience about that journey and how that came. Because in my, in my mind's eye, you know, and, and in my, my experience of autism has been the challenging behaviours. Yeah. Apart from one boy I know who's the same age as Thomas was born the month before, um, who sounds very similar to Max. So... 
the only people I know in my my peer group with autistic children, their children in residential and have been since they were 12 or yeah. 13. So different conversation. But for yourself, somebody in their mid-50s, yeah. you know, everything's everything's fine, everything's good. I'm sure you've got a lovely house here in northwest London. So what was it that, that because it's a difficult conversation about yeah. your, your son going to residential, I get that. But talk to us about the journeys there because clearly it's it's working for you and it's working for Max. Yes, okay, so... I always I said earlier that we never looked too far in the future, but there was always a looming uh, cliff edge from our perspective was Max's end of education. What happens to Max after he finishes school? We were very lucky Max stayed at school till lockdown. March 23rd, 24th was his last day at school, um, at which point he was always leaving in the in the July. Um and but that was curtailed by four months so he was always leaving and that had loomed large for a few years we managed to get this uh, the school that he was at had a post-19 provision which ironically i helped set up within the school and max was able to stay there for three or four years so we put we kicked the can down the road because we didn't know what was around and summer holidays were hard what does a summer holiday look like and does that replicate what happens after school so for me, I'm at work, I go, I leave, goodbye, darling, Max is still asleep, but my wife has got to deal with who's coming to pick him up, if he's going on a day trip, if they, if they get cancelled, if he's been bad, coming back early, having to curtail her day. So it was a much bigger impact on my wife than for me. We discussed it and I, I was mindful of what, who, for her, the big impact was her, mindful of what she wanted. And we knew that if we wanted Max to have full-time support that he have some independent living that he was going to have to do that away from the family home and there was always that nagging voice what the hell happens to you if if you're out on a saturday night and some idiot goes into the side of you and no one's there what's happening and that always scared me that was my biggest fear and so we looked at supported living and we um denied of it for a couple of years you know i think if we could have had the perfect time we might have had the last term at school Max had moved into supported living, had, had gone to school. They took him to school and take him back so that he had that straight transition in. But then COVID came about and the best laid plans, et cetera, et cetera. So during that time, Max struggled. We never really struggled with Max before. For the first part of it, it was fine. We really, you know, we did the baking bread, making arts and crafts, things going on, long walks. It was lovely. But he got bored of us and I don't blame him. And it was difficult especially for my wife, because she's the primary caregiver. I was the worker. So we, we managed to get involved with a, um, a charity that, that I knew, the chief exec of, and they talked us through what would happen. And then we were speaking to the local authority. We had a lot of twos and fro's about what Max needed. And they found a flat about 800 yards from where we live that he could live by himself and have carers there 24 hours a day. And so by the time they signed that off, that was October 2020, we spoke to the charity, that uh, a care provider, and December 14th, 2020, so 12 weeks later, Max was moving out. So it was really quick. You know, it was one minute, it was, a, it was an idea to actually, we found the perfect flat and we have to sign and make a decision. And that was tricky. So you're going to have that um, at some point in your life. But I have to say, and it may not be the case for everyone. We've got incredibly lucky. Max loves it. As I said before, he comes on a Tuesday and, and has dinner with us. Every Friday night, he stays over with us, not 
because we're religious, just because we that's what we agreed. So he comes at six o'clock on a Friday, goes back at three o'clock on a Saturday. So we get some real quality time with him. And instead of him being bored of us, he's really excited to see us. And instead of us being at the end of our wits end because he's been a pain for that day, on a Tuesday, if he's being a nightmare, in two hours, he'd be going back, don't worry. It's, it's a bit like being a, a quasi-grandparent. You get all the good bits and you get to give them back. And that sounds really cold-hearted, but it's great. But the relationship's, I think, better than it's ever been with Max. He's so happy, he's so settled. And they are braver than we are. We got a, a we're on a WhatsApp group with his care team on Saturday, and um, we've got tickets for Max for a, a pop concert at the Palladium with for a, um, an Israeli singer. Do you think Max would like to go? And I'm thinking, yeah. I said, look, let him go, but if he hates it, be prepared to walk out. We'd have never taken him in a million years. Anyway, we got video footage of Max sitting there, rocking back and forth, smile on his face. He absolutely loved it, and so he's doing new things and experiences that we wouldn't have done. And his loving life, and and you know, we took him away last month to the Algarve for a week with my mum and my wife and uh, Max, the four of us, and it was just so much fun to be with him twenty four hours a day, mm-hmm. and all that pressure of you know it being like a a noose around us, and it was real constraint about making sure we're back in time for the carers. My wife making packed lunches every day, making sure she had that's been relieved and. I feel I should, maybe I should feel guilty for saying it, but it seems to work so well. And I'm not sure if that's the case for everybody. And we haven't taken a straw poll of anybody, but it's just working incredibly well for us. And I think we're incredibly lucky for that it has done. Yeah, and you're not taking it for granted. I can and I can no, see that. And the fact all. that it's you know 800 yards away from where you live. Did you know it existed before? We because they said we could have a flat. And I said, well, they gave us the local authority gave us a uh, a budget. We looked on Rightmove and looked for a two-bedroom flat and we found one within budget and it was stunning. My younger son's incredibly jealous of it because he won't be able to afford to live anywhere like that when he finishes his studies. And it's it just ticked every box. And, you know, if we didn't go for it, we'd have kicked ourselves. And it, as I said, we, it came so quick that we had to make a big decision. And there was no time for procrastination. And I think that's the reason we probably did it. It didn't work out that he moved in the 14th of December and they kept day by day upping the second lockdown um, arrangements so we couldn't see him and he couldn't come to us. The 1st of January 2021, getting a phone call saying Max has tested positive for COVID wasn't a good time particularly either and we couldn't see him for 10 days. So that was a little bit of a hiccup. But other than that, it's been you know the smoothest of sailings. I mean, gosh, we're lucky. Yeah, that's really good to hear, and good, and the the Max is enjoying it, and as you say, they're braver as well. You know, they really are. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, so I spoke to the chief executive. Um, he said, you know, any complaints? I said, yeah, there's none. I mean, he said you must find. I said, you know what? You could shave him more once or twice more a week. It's literally you having to find something to moan about because he, they are unbelievable. His carers are just unbelievable our, our fear is that they'll bugger off somewhere else and then we've got people that he's going to have to learn to 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 live with and they're going to have to understand his idiosyncrasies but i think you know we're so far touch wood we've been very lucky with the the level of care we've had for him he's been we've been blessed yeah and i think when i've sort of seen thomas's care has changed you know you i remember the first care we had for him and they only do doing a few hours a day initially and then she left uh, it's like it's like heartbreaking yeah. isn't it yeah. I remember my wife crying on the stairs. Uh, I, I won't swear on. Uh, am I allowed to swear on this? You can swear she on this. She said we're. F-ing. 
sucked. She really did. I mean, she left and it was Max's first carer and she was everything. She'd even come on holiday with us and did some therapy when we were on holiday. And she left and Max loved her. And, you know, you think that's the end of the world, but people will come and go in, into your life. There'll be some people that, are, you know, four out of 10, you're going to get some 11 out of 10s. And, you know, you want to cling on to them, but people have their own lives. And we're still in touch with some of Max's therapists from the very earliest days of Lovas. So in June 2000, we still speak to the, the girl that looks after him who's got her own children now. And, you know, you meet some incredibly uh, important people in your life. When they go, it is, it's, it's heartbreaking. And I, you're going to have to just get used to that. I can't, but you're going to have to. So it's really So when you said you hadn't told anyone about Max at work, Mm-hmm. I think obviously part of that was was because of the um, the, the promise of Lovas, yes, <laughs> the unfulfilled promise. I'm sure there must be a, a child or two or an adult or two who had it and is now, you know, uh, no, a fantastic. But I haven't come across them. But sounds like know, a YouTube advert to me. But it was it was. I I think there up- is some some evidence behind it. And as I said, I don't get to see what was in box B. Box mm. B being we do nothing and let's see how it goes. We chose box A, and Max is where he is. I, I don't know what version 2.1 of Max would be without it. So you, you make those decisions. Who the hell knows? Yeah, absolutely. You make those decisions with the information you've got there. And, you, you know, you if you can beat yourself up for the the decisions you make that you had all the information, you still did the wrong thing. Um, but, you know, we did, we did the best we could with the information we had at the time. But the, but the but I didn't realize that as a factor in you not telling people at work. I thought you just you didn't tell people at work because you didn't want to talk about it. Did I not want to talk about it as well? Very possibly. I, 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 it's hard to, you know, psychoanalyze your 30-year-old self. I, the motivation was we actually genuinely believed that Max was going to be okay. But then I didn't, you know, I dread fed it. I, maybe I felt embarrassed that I hadn't told anybody and that Max was now seven. And you'd know me, for, you know, I worked with these guys for year after year after year. And I didn't really talk about it. And it almost came a point of embarrassment, which is so difficult to deal with. And I don't know why I didn't tell people when I could have done when we knew. I just think we're quite private people. You know, still, I'm not on social media. Still, uh, you know, I, we're, we're private. And I think, you know, we would always find, we'd go and find, we'd walk, you know, down the beach 200 yards where nobody else was and sit on the beach by ourselves all day and go to villas and be with ourselves all day. And that's, we were just quite private people. I, I I don't know why. I'm not sure I was when I was a teenager, but I, I think I became probably cousin Max. So you've done a lot of fundraising for charities though, right? When you're in this world, you meet some inspirational people. And when they come and say, would you mind giving us a hand? It's very difficult saying no. So I joined the charity of the school. It's almost a parents association. And became chairman of that charity, which I've um, just stood down for, although still on on, on board because Max left two years ago. We've, you know, we've raised money on a, for them for loads of projects. We bought mini buses with the money we raised, sensory equipment, playrooms, experiences. We you know, we sent kids um, with, with complex needs, not just autism, on on their first plane trips, on canal boat rides, you know. So we did that and it was... I think when you see the good that other people do, and I think that's the key. I worked in the city. You know, I was your typical city guy. You know, whatever the bonus you gave me wasn't nearly enough. I'm worth so much more. How dare you insult me with this? And you meet people that don't actually give a damn about money. And what they care about is making incremental tiny differences to children and young adults with complex needs. It's difficult not to be humbled. 
and you get involved. So I became a governor of, of the school. Then it turned to a multi-academy trust. We helped set up a post-19 provision. You know, I played a very small part in those, but you got involved because it's, it, it, it's very difficult. To, you know, the people that are truly inspirational are the people that do it that don't have to. I'm in it because through circumstances, without Max, I'd write out a check and not think about it a minute later. But because of Max, I'm in it. The people I'm most impressed with are the people that could write the check out and get their hands really dirty. And they're the people that uh, always amaze me. So looking back, what would you say to your mid-30s self? Mm-hmm. Yes, I suppose I I, I read um, something, I think it was in the Sunday Times magazine about, I, I don't know if the child had special needs, but it took me, the, and it was entitled The Letter I Wish I Could Have Written Myself. And I remember lying in bed thinking, I wonder what I'd say to myself, you know, on the day Max got diagnosed. And I suppose it would probably be, Richard, first off, life isn't over. You know, don't worry, your life isn't ending. Take a deep breath. In 20 years' time, you're going to be happier than you ever have been. And you're going to be more fulfilled than you ever thought you could be. The journey ahead is going to take you to places and introduce you to people that you'd never have met in a million years before. You're going to do things and see things that you never would have witnessed. And you're going to enjoy it. And you know what? Life is actually okay. Max is happy. You're still married. And no matter what the trials and tribulations that were thrown at you, you smashed it. And you got through the other side and you're in a really good place. I suppose the other bit I would say is you're going to meet people that will will humble you and they'll humble you so much that you won't be able to sit on the sidelines and not get involved. And you'll do things and help people that have got nothing to do with you, even when you don't have to. And I think if I'd have read that letter it may have given me some comfort. You, you don't know. Sometimes you're in such a dark place, you don't want to hear some good news. But I would tell anybody who's listening who's got a fresh diagnosis that the road ahead isn't as bleak as you think when you get that. You really will have laugh again. You'll have some incredibly funny times. Some of the things that happen, you'll be telling your friends. I mean, we. <laughs> my favourite one is we had to go to get the court of protection to be able to make decisions for Max's behalf. And we went to the doctor to try and get Max signed off that he was not cognitively um, able to make those decisions for us. And it was just a black comedy. Max was sitting there rocking back and forward. The doctor kept asking questions, you know, really complex. You are aware that this is a court proceedings, that this is to make decisions for you. And Max is rocking backwards and forwards. My wife's saying he doesn't understand. I'm saying he has to ask the questions. Max is rocking back and forward. My wife is crying and he's asking this whole speech for 10 minutes. And then uh, he asked Max if he understands. Max says nothing. And the doctor says, would you like me to repeat that? Max says yes. And he has to do the whole speech again. Well, when I tell you, I still, it was bleak, <laughs> horribly dark and telling that story. All I was thinking at that moment was my wife was crying and it was, I can't wait to tell my friends. It was absolutely brilliant. So those dark moments you will laugh about and it's seriously, there's going to be opportunities and things that happen that are going to make you laugh and make you a better person. You'll be stronger and more rounded and life is good. I promise you life is good. Just trust me on this one. Richard, thank you so much for your time. And it's been our privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank, well, thank you. you so much for having me. You take care. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Eddie Podcast. 
and please remember to subscribe to hear the next story and don't forget to leave us a review or rating because it helps other people find the podcast more easily so we can share these stories with even more people and if you'd like to share your story please visit us at www.eddy.network and click on share where you'll be able to send us your story pics and even if you'd prefer to keep anonymous you can let us know there too the more stories we can share the more dads we can help. Thank you for joining us. And remember, keep moving forward.